Today we're finishing our very brief study that we've been doing the last few weeks in the book of Philemon. Like one of the, the bonuses of studying a very short book of the Bible like Philemon is the sense of satisfaction that in just a few weeks we've made it all the way through an entire book of the Bible. So today I'm going to look particularly at the last third, roughly, of this letter that Paul sends, uh, starting in verse 17 through the end of the book. Uh, so let me ask, as I do every week, if you're able, would you please join me in standing as we hear God's holy word read to us? This is from the book of Philemon, starting in verse 17. <clears throat> So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for this short but potent book of Philemon, which teaches us so uh, clearly and so instructively and helpfully this gospel picture of of reconciliation uh, between brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray as we uh, commit ourselves to it for these next 30 minutes that you would bless this time, Lord, that you would be our teacher, that you would scatter the seed of your word into our hearts and may it take root, may it grow, may it produce fruit in our lives. We pray that it would be productive and that it would accomplish your purpose for which you send it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If there's one thing that all the scholars agree about the book of Philemon, it's that this is a very finely crafted letter. That that every word that Paul has chosen here is done so very intentionally. He's structured this letter uh, as brief as it is, the short personal appeal to Philemon that he's structured it uh, just this way in order to make maximum impact on Philemon. And he's marshaled in this letter just his entire rhetorical arsenal in order not only to make his case, but to give Philemon the greatest reason to hear him and to receive his instruction and therefore to receive Onesimus. This letter has been described as the most brilliantly nuanced, compelling letter of reconciliation in the ancient world. It is a model of grace and charm. And that applies to the whole letter, but this last section, these verses that we read, are uh, what it's all been building to. This is the climax, this is the, the coup de grace that Paul writes here in these last verses, because you remember at the beginning, Paul began by praying... Uh, that the gospel would do its work, right? that it would become effective, that the, the faith that uh, Philemon had would become effective in his own life. We saw last week that Paul then makes use of gospel methods. Right? So rather than just giving plain commands, rather than just uh, telling Philemon exactly a checklist of here is what to do, rather he says, I appeal to you on the basis of love 
to do what is right. And, and he doesn't exactly spell it out for him, but he makes that appeal. Now in this last section, these final verses, this, the climax of the letter, what Paul is going to do is Paul himself is going to demonstrate in real, practical, everyday life what it means to live out the realities of the gospel. In other words, he is going to actually do what he has prayed would happen. Right? He prayed that the gospel and that faith that Philemon had would become effective, right? that it would work itself out in his relationships. And now Paul is going to show what that looks like in his relationship with Philemon. And so this is a very instructive part for us. It's very practical. Paul here is showing what it looks like to live out the reality of the gospel in his relationship with both Philemon and Onesimus. So he's not just explaining it, but as he explains it, we see the way he lives it out. And so we're going to explore that in these verses. And I just look at it under two simple headings. First, number one, we are Onesimus. And number two, we are called to act like Paul. So we are Onesimus, and we are called in these verses to act like Paul. But number one, uh, we mentioned this last week, and this is very important as we read this book and, and understand how we're meant to apply it to ourselves, is to recognize that we are in the position of Onesimus. And we remember, right, Onesimus is the slave, or he had been the slave of Philemon, and we learn in the book that he was not a good slave. He, he says, formerly, he was useless to you. So he was somehow a, a very bad slave to Philemon. And on top of that, not only was he bad and useless and frustrating, but then he ran away. And we have every reason to believe from this book that it seems as though as he was running away, he stole something from Philemon. So we get this picture in our minds of just how uh, broken this whole relationship must have felt between Philemon and Onesimus. Philemon, we can imagine, probably never wanted to see Onesimus again. Uh, he, he probably would have been fully happy for him never to come back. Uh, perhaps you have had experiences similar to that. And that's part of why this book is so helpful to us, because we live in a fallen world. We know what it's like to have broken relationships like that. We know how painful they can be. Uh, we don't have to use a lot of imagination to, to think how frustrating it would be for us if we were, like Philemon, in this position where we had perhaps hired someone, a contractor, to do some work for us. And that contractor, not only did they turn out to be useless and do bad work, but they stole from us, and then they went AWOL, and we could never hear from them again. I can only imagine how, uh, how frustrating that would be. We'd never want to see uh, or hear from that person again. We certainly wouldn't hire them ever again. And that's what this relationship must be like between Philemon and Onesimus. Uh, but we remember it's perhaps even a step worse than that because we know uh, that in the ancient world, it was accepted that the punishment for a runaway slave was death. So Onesimus, as a, a runaway slave, uh, knows himself he can't go back. He certainly can't risk being caught. Uh, he has the sentence of death hanging over his own head. He knows he has run away, and there is now no return without death waiting for him. But here's what else we know. Somehow in God's good providence, uh, Onesimus, having run away, came under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And he was converted under Paul's ministry. Uh, and now, Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. 
And he's sending him back. Uh, we believe that it's, it's Epaphras who's carrying this letter, and perhaps Epaphras and, and Onesimus are going together back to Philemon. And he's doing this. Uh, first, he does it for Philemon's sake. We see that in verse 12, in order that Philemon might not feel robbed of what he had, so he's doing it partly for justice. Uh, it's right, it's proper to send a runaway back. But more than that, he's not just doing it for justice. He's doing it because he wants to see reconciliation between two men who have been estranged from each other. He's doing it because this is part of what it means for Paul to apply the gospel to this, this very everyday practical reality of a broken relationship. And so he's sending him back for justice, but especially for reconciliation. We know how easy it would be to say, Onesimus, maybe just stay in Rome instead. Right? Find some new work. Right? Put the past behind you. Start over. Go somewhere else. Do something different. But that's not what Paul does. Paul is going to send Onesimus back to Philemon uh, with this gospel imperative of reconciliation. And I think that's very profound. Just to, to ponder how bad this situation is. And yet, yet Paul seems to think there is no situation so bad, so broken, so what we would call hopeless, that, that there's not possibility that the gospel can still be at work in bringing people together and reconciling them, even when we think it would be impossible. And part of the reason is this. If God is able to reconcile sinners to himself, Right, sinners who have sinned against him and who deserve death because of that sin, and God is the one who has been offended by our sins because all our sins are ultimately against God himself. And if God is able to reconcile sinners to himself, certainly he can also provide for the reconciliation of sinners one to another. The gospel has the power to do that, so Paul is going to send Onesimus back. And we know how difficult it must be it's, uh, you know, just, we just put ourselves in Onesimus's shoes, walking that path back to Colossae, back to Philemon, and we can only imagine what must have been going through his mind. Wondering how Philemon would react when he saw him approach. Wondering if there was, in fact, any hope for him. He was a runaway slave. He had literally nothing going for him. The law was not on his side. It would have been just, according to the law, for Philemon simply to insist on the death penalty. And yet I wonder, as Onesimus was walking that road back, perhaps with Epaphras there, do you wonder if he ever looked in the letter that he was carrying? Do you wonder if he ever peeked in that letter from the Apostle Paul to Philemon to see what Paul had to say about it? Do you wonder if he knew that Paul had written to Philemon, receive Onesimus as you would receive me? How would that change things for Onesimus walking that path? Here's Onesimus has literally no standing. Right? According to law, the runaway slave, he has no standing before Philemon. But the Apostle Paul does. Paul has all kinds of standing, right? He's not only the, the apostle, right? He's the preacher. He's also the one under whose ministry it was under Paul's ministry that Philemon was converted. And so here is Paul. He has all kinds of standing. And now what Paul is doing, we see that there in verse 17, where he says to Philemon, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul is going to transfer his standing, his status, 
his social capital, his relationship with Philemon, to transfer that to Onesimus. Say, Philemon, receive Onesimus as if you were receiving me, the Apostle Paul. Don't treat him as the runaway who's been captured and now forcibly made to return. Treat him as though he is the Apostle coming for a visit, the Apostle to whom you owe a great debt of thanksgiving and gratitude. Now, if Onesimus had been so bold as to peek in that letter, we can imagine that would have been pretty great news for him to see that. Here he is, he has gone from being a nobody and less than a nobody to being treated as though he is somebody, right? To being treated as though he has actually quite high standing. He would look in that letter and say, it is now as though he has been given an entirely new identity. That he now approaches Philemon not as Onesimus, the runaway slave, but as Paul, the gospel preacher. A new identity and much greater hope that things might go well when he comes to his master's house that he will be received now not as a slave, but possibly as a son, a treasured friend. Now, let me give another example of of the way this works. I learned to drive at a pretty good time in history. It was the early 90s, and one of the other things that came about in the early 90s was somewhere around there is when pay at the pump was becoming more ubiquitous something that we take for granted now that you simply pay at the pump, but there was in fact a time you actually had to walk into the gas station to pay before you could pump your gas. Uh, And I remember how much my dad especially loved the pay at the pump feature. Because he realized not only did he not have to go into the gas station, he didn't have to go to the gas station at all. He could send me. And he could give me his credit card. And when I had his credit card... I could go out and I could go to that gas station and all of my dad's riches, such as they are, were now there at my disposal. I approached the gas station not as though I was a broke teenager, but as though I was my dad and I had the power to purchase gas. Now that's a very trivial example. But we see here's Onesimus who has nothing. And he is now approaching Philemon's house as though he were the same as the Apostle Paul, who says, receive him as you would receive me. But that's not the end. Paul goes even one step further than that, doesn't he? Look at verses 18 and 19. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own so Paul says first Onesimus has my standing receive him as though you would receive me and second if Onesimus has a debt that's on me my standing becomes his standing his standing becomes my standing right if he has wronged you at all now we, we know in reading that that that's a bit of an understatement he has wronged Philemon incredibly so, right, to the nth degree. And here is where we see that this, is, this transfer of standing, for Paul to say, receive him as you would receive me, is not some you know, ceremonial wordplay that has no meaning. For him to be able to give his standing to Onesimus, 
he must also take Onesimus' standing on himself. Otherwise, it would not be just. Right? He can't simply go around and sharing his status with everyone right? unless he's willing to take their standing on himself as well. This, this phrase here, uh, charge that to my account. That word is, is the same word we know well from the book of Romans where Paul will say, uh, it's the word reckon, reckon yourself dead to sin. Uh, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's the word we know as, as taking one thing and simply counting it to another person's account. And that's what he's saying in this verse as well. He says, take all of Philemon's debts and reckon that to my account. Charge that to me. Put that on my bill. And we know, of course we know, having studied this, Onesimus is deeply in the red. Onesimus knows, owes Philemon so much, perhaps even his own life. And Paul says, take that and charge that to my account. Take that debt of even his very life and, and charge that to me. Now this is good, particularly for those of us, if, you, if you're one of those who has a, a finely tuned sense of justice. It has to work this way. But it has to work this way. He can't simply take uh, Onesimus's debts and just sweep those under the rug. I just say, Let, let's just write those off, pretend they don't exist, right? Turn a blind eye. That doesn't work. Something has to be done. And, and that reflects the fact God is a God of justice, right? Even when God looks at us to forgive our sins, he doesn't merely sweep our sins under the carpet. He doesn't merely turn a blind eye. He doesn't pretend that they don't exist. The penalty does have to be paid for those sins. But it does not get paid by us. Paul understands that the debt Onesimus owes has to be paid, but it does not have to be paid by Onesimus. Paul can say, charge that to me instead. And of course, we might well imagine that Philemon would object to that. Philemon might say, listen, Paul, it's not just that he owes me some great deal of money. He owes me his very life. And that perhaps is why Paul says at the end of verse 19, to say nothing, Philemon, of your owing me, even your very self. I, I, I see Paul saying, listen, I, I'm not going to mention it, but you owe me your very life. We remember Philemon himself was converted under Paul's ministry. There is a sense in which Philemon owes the life that he has to the Apostle Paul. Now, why is Paul doing this? Here we see Paul is making an extraordinarily generous offer. Now, here he is uh, voluntarily taking on himself the, the debt, including the death penalty, of this runaway slave. The slave that, you know, probably a few weeks ago he had never met before. Why would he do this? Why would he make such an offer to say, I will go so far as to give all of my standing to you and I will take your standing deeply in the red on myself? Why? Why would Paul do that? I believe Paul is willing to make an offer like that because he knows what it's like to be on the receiving end of an offer like that. And he's willing to do that for someone else because he knows what it's like to receive that offer and to, to receive someone else doing that for him. You see, this is actually the way that gospel transformation works. Gospel transformation is not merely a command from God to us to say, uh, go be kind to people. 
right? Go be loving, be merciful and gracious to others. He transforms us first by first, showing his kindness to us, showing his mercy and his grace to us, and then saying, now you go and also do likewise for others. Here's a brief example that's been um, very recent on my mind lately. This summer, uh, when we were on vacation in South Carolina this summer, Aubrey had connected via Facebook with another uh, PCA pastor's wife uh, whose family was coming to Los Angeles in order for, their, for the husband to have brain surgery here. Uh, and they needed a car while they were here. And, and Aubrey found out about that need and she thought, well, we're not there, we're not using our car, they can use our car while we're on vacation. And it worked out well. Edgar had the key to our car, so he was able to get that to them, and they were able to use our car. Well, it turned out, while they were here, their housing fell through. And Aubrey heard about that as well and thought, well, we're not there. How about they stay in our house? Now, why would Aubrey make such a generous offer to let someone that we had never met before live in our house while we're on vacation? First, because Aubrey is kind and generous and a thoughtful person. But even more than that, she could do that because we've been on the receiving end of that offer. Some of you remember four years ago when our family went to Philadelphia for Ezra to have surgery, and we needed a place to stay. And there was a family there, the husband worked with Campus Crusade, and and they were in Colorado for the summer doing some ministry training. And so they said to us, We're not using our house. Why don't you stay there while your son's in the hospital? You see, we had received that very offer, so it made total sense then when someone else needed the same thing for us to say, well, we have received. Therefore, we will give as well the same thing. And again, a small example, but that's the way that gospel transformation works, where God says he has first loved us in Christ. And therefore, because of that, we are able to take that same love that we have received and we are able to, in turn, give that to others who need it the same way that we needed it. And what we see in this letter is that what Paul is doing in substituting himself for indebted Onesimus and in substituting Onesimus for himself, he is simply doing exactly what Jesus has done for him in the gospel. The message of the gospel, of course, begins for us with the bad news that we are rebels, we are runaways, that we have sinned against our Father and left. Like Onesimus, we are the mischievous, rebellious subjects of our Master who have run away in disobedience. And because of that, we now have the sentence of death hanging over our heads. And in ourselves, we were hopeless had no way to be reconciled to God. We had no claim on his mercy. We had no right to expect that he should do anything merciful or kind to us. We deserved only justice. And God is a God of justice. He must punish sin. But we also know that Jesus stepped in on our behalf. And it's as though we can almost picture Jesus going to the Father and saying, Father, if Jeff has has done anything against you, if he has sinned against you in any way, if he owes you anything at all, charge that to my account. And in return, Father, receive him as you would receive me. See, that's what it is to be on the receiving end of this offer, to hear Christ himself say that his own standing before the Father is given freely as an act of mercy to us. And Jesus says to the Father, receive them 
as you would receive me, so that when we by faith go before the Father, we don't go in our own standing. We don't go in our own uh, robes of ourselves and our own works as it were. We go in the robes of righteousness that Christ has provided. And it is as though we go with the very standing of Christ. All of his righteousness has been reckoned, charged, counted unto us so that when the Father looks at you, who does he see? He sees the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ in your behalf. And he smiles. And he welcomes you. And he receives you with great joy. But yet God is a God of justice. And it is true that we are sinners and something must be done. And so what does he do? Jesus says, if they owe you anything, charge that to my account. And therefore Jesus, in going to the cross, we see exactly what he's doing. He's taking the punishment that we deserve. We were the runaway slaves. We were the ones who had that sentence of death hanging over our heads. And Jesus is the one who says, if they owe you anything, charge it to me. And God says, they owe me a lot. They owe me their very lives. And he does, in fact, charge that to Jesus' account. And Jesus takes it. And in going to the cross, he's paying off our debt that we owed because of our sin. All our sins are charged to Jesus because God couldn't simply sweep them under the carpet. He couldn't turn a blind eye. They had to be dealt with. There had to be death. And Jesus says, charge that to me. And so the theological term that we use is substitutionary atonement, that we, our sins are atoned for by a substitute. Jesus substituting himself for us, him uh, giving his standing to us and taking our standing and our debts on himself. And what Paul says in Romans 3, he says that that was to show God's righteousness because he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so I wonder if Onesimus ever peeked in that letter. I wonder if he read it at all, if he opened that letter on his way back to Philemon to see what Paul had written to Philemon, if he knew what Paul had said. And if he did, I wonder if he trusted in that offer. I wonder if it caused him to go back to Philemon with hope, with confidence, realizing that he was leaning all his hope for life itself on that letter, on that offer being true. And Philemon accepting that offer. That was his only hope. He owed his whole life to Philemon. Without that letter, there was no hope at all. I wonder if he trusted in that letter, in that offer of substitutionary atoning work. But we do know that Onesimus went back and the question for us then, do we go back? Do, have you gone back? Are you going to the Father in great faith, trusting not in yourself, but trusting only in the offer of the gospel that God has made? Going back to the Father and saying, Lord, here I am and I don't come on my own merits. I don't come thinking that you'll receive me somehow because of anything that I've done. I know where I stand. But will you, Father, receive me purely because of Jesus? Will you receive me as your own son, not because of me, but because Christ in his mercy has said, his standing is mine. Receive him as you would receive me. That's where we are.
We are Onesimus, the rebel, loved and saved by our Father through the substitutionary grace of Jesus. Now that's the first step. We are Onesimus. But also, in this letter, we see that we are called to be Paul. Called to act out now as Paul on behalf of others as well. Right? This is not only a a lesson, it's a call to action for us. Not only to believe the gospel, but to follow Paul's example in living out the gospel. See, what Paul does in this relationship is he's not, not merely believing and asking others to believe, he is now stepping out to act the part of reconciler of others. He is acting out of his gospel faith. Right? He is going to uh, leverage his own status and his resources at his disposal for the sake of gospel peace between others as well. And this is, in fact, how lives are changed. Right? When people see, not only do we believe the gospel, but the gospel is what shapes our lives and they see it in action. They experience the self-giving love of God in a tangible, practical way. I want to read some verses that uh, come from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16 through 21. And in reading these, uh, it's interesting to me that some scholars have suggested that perhaps 2 Corinthians was written several weeks or maybe months after Philemon was written. It's just a theory. Paul didn't add dates to his letters, but it's an interesting one. Because hear what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.16. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, here is what Paul is doing. is He's not only explaining this very transfer of status, that God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's this swap, this trade of status before God. And he says, therefore, because of that, we are also ambassadors for God. We, therefore, help others to also be reconciled, as we have received the offer of gospel reconciliation. So we are to go and and be ambassadors in order that others also might be reconciled to God. Isn't that what Paul is doing in his letter to Philemon? Through Paul's ministry, both Philemon and Onesimus were first reconciled to God. And now he's working out the consequences of that. He's making their faith, their their koinonia, their, their, their common fellowship in Christ, he's causing that now to become effective for gospel transformation. One commentator says that in the book of Philemon, Paul's not only urging and requesting, he's actually embodying what he calls the ministry of reconciliation. 
he is acting as though he is not regarding anyone from a human point of view any longer. Rather, he sees them through the lens of what God has done for him in Christ. He says Philemon is a new creation in Christ. Onesimus is a new creation in Christ. They're both part of the new creation, and therefore, how can they be at odds? If their divergent social standings now by the gospel have been obliterated and outflanked by the much more important, significant, foundational uh, union and communion that we have in Christ. So to finish where we began our study of the book of Philemon, we talked about Philemon being a sort of diorama. Right? It's this very small-scale model of a much grander reality. And the grand reality is, is the work that God is doing in Christ to reconcile people to himself and to bring them together through their faith in Christ. And, and that is the creation of the new creation here in the midst of the old, the spread of the kingdom of God. And to illustrate that, he gives us this one little picture. This one picture of a, a very broken, tumultuous relationship. These two men totally at odds with each other. And he shows how the gospel is able to step into that circumstance. And how Paul, as an ambassador, is able to act out gospel realities, to do for them what God has done for him, in order to restore peace between them. And this letter says, look at this one example, and imagine the entire world someday being transformed by God through Christ, and go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled to think of the reality of, of what it means for Christ when he would say, receive him as, he would, as you would receive me. And if they owe anything to you, charge that to my account. And to think of the mercy and the grace, the humility of Christ in that moment, taking on himself our standing, our sins, our condemnation, and bearing it away at the cross. Meanwhile, we have the privilege and the honor of going before you in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ himself, being accepted as Christ is accepted, becoming now sons and daughters sitting at your table. So Lord, we give you the praise, we give you the honor, we give you the glory, we give you all our thanksgiving and all of our hearts in return. We ask now, Lord, by the power of your spirit, that your word will accomplish its purpose, that it might not return to you void, but Lord, by your spirit, press it on our hearts, Cause it to take root, cause it to grow, that we might bear fruit 30, 60, even 100 times that which has been sown, not for our glory, but for the glory of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.